Please bow your heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord together to ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are blind and foolish. We have been sinful this week in thought and word and deed. So give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. May we see you afresh in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we confess we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. We are grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, your word stands forever. So feed us now, we pray. Feed us on your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. One of the great questions of Christianity is why do bad things happen to good people? It's not just a question of Christianity, it's a question of reality. Why do bad things happen at all if God is both good and in control? That question is a subset of the problem of evil. Why is there moral evil and natural disaster in a world created by a God who is good? Well, the knee-jerk solution, the knee-jerk answer is that bad things don't happen to good people precisely because there are no good people. There are only bad people, sinful people, and therefore whatever bad things happen to us, we deserve them. Problem solved. Next issue. That's kind of superficial. Yes, we are all sinful, but the more accurate question would be, why do especially bad things happen to people that are not especially bad? Does every bad outcome have a one-to-one correspondence with some personal specific sin? Well, John 9 begins with just that question. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, John 9, and the answer is encouraging. Especially bad things sometimes happen to people who are not especially bad so that God can show his goodness by bringing good out of that bad. And therefore, his goodness is known to overcome badness in a way that would be impossible to know if God never permitted evil to be. Yet by the end of John 9, we're confronted with a different problem of evil. And that problem is the problem of people who are morally evil but refuse to admit it and pose as if they are the good ones. And yet the solution is similar. Just as unexplained suffering is an opportunity for God to display His mercy... So willfully ignorant evil is an opportunity for God to display his discriminating wisdom and justice. In both cases of evil, God reveals something of his character in ways that we would not otherwise have known or realized, that we would not otherwise have been able to worship and admire in him. In other words, God is not only able to suppress evil before it becomes powerful, He can overcome evil 
after it has become powerful. And he is not only able to tell the difference between the innocent and the guilty, he is able to discern who is falsely claiming to be innocent when in fact they are guilty. And here in John 9, he makes himself and all this known about himself through the goodness and wisdom of Jesus. And the question throughout is whether we should believe that Jesus really does speak for God. So we're going to tell the story, and then we're going to give the point, and then we'll run through some applications. Starting in verses 9, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, John 9. As he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Well, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, and he said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to him, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son, who you, say, who, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to now hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. 
The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir? that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Surely we are not also blind. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So the context, verses 9, 1 through 5, the whole episode is framed with God's sovereignty over suffering and sin. The whole episode happens on Jesus' way out of the temple after he had just suffered an attack, an attempted mob homicide. He saw a blind man. So Jesus sees us before we can ever see him. The question his disciples ask in verse 2 is John's framing device for the whole narrative. Who sinned that this man was punished with blindness from birth? But as the episode unfolds, the question of who sinned expands to include Jesus and the Pharisees. For now, Jesus says this blindness is not a punishment. It's purposeful for God's glory in this man. It's an opportunity. And Jesus sees a broader urgency to this opportunity in verses 4 to 5, both for himself and for his disciples. We must work the works of God. He sees his own earthly ministry already fading. Night is coming, he says. His death, resurrection, ascension are coming. The top of Jesus' earthly, earthly hourglass is almost gone already. Time's already running out. And with that, Jesus gets to work. What Jesus does for this blind man, he does unsolicited. Blind man doesn't ask for it. Jesus initiates everything. The blind man literally did not see Jesus coming. Man never asks for healing, and that is how every Christian conversion begins. Here Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, anoints the man's eyes, and commands him to go wash in a pool whose name means sent. Important enough for John to translate. Significant, because the miracle raises the question, where is Jesus from? And we already know John's answer. He is sent from heaven. And therefore, he has the authority to send a blind man to go wash off the mud that he anointed with his eyes so that he can see. The best explanation for the mud is that Jesus can work in whatever way he wants. He's not dependent on a method. But sending the man to wash reminds you of Elisha sending Naaman to wash in the Jordan River. Blind man washes off, comes back seeing, and the confusion ensues. 
All this guy's neighbors, who had previously seen him begging, now saw him and wondered, is this the same guy? I think it is. He himself has to clear it up for them. I'm that guy. And here in verse 10 is the first occurrence of a question that's going to be repeated almost ad nauseum. How? How did that happen? How do you now see? How, how, how? At least six times. How were your eyes open? And he testifies, the man named Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, you should go to the Siloam, the scent pool, and wash. So when I went and washed, I recovered my sight. And they ask in response, where is that guy? Of course, the healed man doesn't know because he still hasn't seen what Jesus looks like. But if he doesn't know where Jesus is, his friends know how they can straighten all this out. They lead him to the Pharisees for questioning. Now, why would his friends rat him out to the Pharisees? Because in verse 14, we learn that Jesus did the miracle with mud on the Sabbath. And we know from Jewish tradition that kneading bread, kneading it like working it out, was forbidden on the Sabbath, and that included that would have included what Jesus did with the mud. Now, in verse 15, it's the Pharisees' turn to ask the question, how did he recover his sight? How? His friends, his neighbors have already asked that. Now the Pharisees are asking it. How? How did this happen? So the man testifies again. He put mud on my eyes. I washed it off, but now I see. Simple as that. The Pharisees' response in verse 16 is predictable. Some among the Pharisees said, This man, Jesus, is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. It's open and shut. They say he doesn't keep the Sabbath because they just heard the man say that the miracle happened with mud and mixing mud on the Sabbath was out of bounds by the rules they had made. Therefore, Jesus is a counterfeit, open and closed. But other Pharisees asked yet again, How is this man able to do such signs if he is a sinner? I mean, I know he made mud. I know we're not supposed to need stuff on the Sabbath. I know we're not supposed to work it out like that. But, man, he just healed a blind man. So... But now the question on the table is not whether the blind man is a sinner, but whether Jesus himself is a sinner. You see it? The question's migrated. Who's a sinner? Who sinned? Did Jesus sin? Is Jesus a sinner? So a schism, a division, a disagreement arose among the Pharisees, between the Pharisees, in a mural. And almost comically in verse 17, the Pharisees now ask the healed guy his opinion of Jesus. Well, what do you think about this guy? Who do you think he is? I mean, you're the one whose eyes he opened. What do you think? Do you think he's a sinner? It's not even really clear why they ask him. I mean, the bad Pharisees might be trying to incriminate the healed man for believing in Jesus. Or the persuadable Pharisees might be asking for intel. Either way, the guy now says Jesus is a prophet. 
Not surprising, especially if this guy is a Jew, having heard the story of Elisha and Naaman growing up, and now he himself has just washed and been healed like Naaman. Whatever the case, the Jews now doubt that this guy has ever been blind in the first place. I don't believe your story. Something doesn't wash. So they track down his parents and drag the guy with him. This is your boy, right? And he was born blind? So how does he see now? There's that question again, how? In verse 20, the parents' response is classic. Well, we know he's our son, and we know he was born blind, but how he now sees, we have no clue. And who opened his eyes? No idea. We know him. We know his condition. We don't know how he was healed. We don't know who healed him. That's our story, and we're sticking to it. Because you guys are dangerous. (laughs) You want to know anything else? Ask him. He's a grown-up. In John's retelling, we're now seeing two repeated themes, not just how it happened, but also what we know or don't know. We know, we know. We don't know, we don't know. File that away. Meanwhile, in verses 22 to 23, John's not impressed with the parents' evasiveness. It's not just that they're not being helicopter parents. John chalks it up to fear of man and a desire not to get thrown out of the synagogue for confessing Jesus as the Christ. They know they could get in trouble. They know they could become social religious pariahs if they answer the wrong way. So, since the parents don't exactly cooperate with the investigation, the Jews double back to interrogate the healed man. And look at how they open up the interrogation. How sanctimonious is this? Give glory to God. Brother, do the right thing. I mean, you can almost see him looking at this guy with kind of raised eyebrows like, hey, man, tell us the truth. You know better than to keep up this charade. Give glory to God. Now, that's an ironic phrase for them to use because that's the same phrase that Joshua used when he told Achan to confess his theft. In Joshua 7, 19, give glory to God. We know what you did. The lot has already found you out. The Pharisees are using that against this man who has been healed of his congenital blindness. And here it comes again. We know, we know. That this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. Now the themes of knowing and sinning are joined. We know Jesus is a sinner, and you should give glory to God and admit that we're right about Jesus being a sinner. The irony, of course, is that what would give glory to God is to confess that Jesus was able to anoint and heal the man's eyes because Jesus himself is the anointed Son of God. And the man's response is classic. Look there in verse 25. Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. <laughs> the one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's a fact. And now it's between what the man knows and what the Jews think they know. But they keep coming back to the how question. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? 
They're fixated on how exactly Jesus violated the Sabbath. But the guy isn't having any of it. The more they interrogate him, the more confident he gets in disagreeing with them. Look there at verse 27. I already told you and he didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> now he said that in jest. He's being funny. He's kind of putting it back to him. He's giving them a little bit of their own medicine. But they don't think it's very funny. Because they lose their temper and curse him for it in verse 28. You, you are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. Let's get one thing straight, buddy. We're the ones on the right side of the law here. You're the one in trouble. Don't you, don't you try to interrogate us. Don't you try to reverse the charge on us. And there they go again. First with Abraham last week, now with Moses. They're the good guys. They're on the side of tradition and truth. Why? Because we know that God spoke to Moses. But this guy... We don't know where he's from. Now, for John, that is, of course, the height of irony. Yes, God did speak to Moses, but in Jesus, God's word became flesh and dwelt among us. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. By saying we don't know where he's from, they're likely saying we think he came from nowhere. This guy is literally out of nowhere. And we think he should go back to the nowhere that he is from. And even though we don't know where he's from, we do know where he's not from. He is not from heaven. He is not from God. That's for sure. Well, the irony is not lost on the healed man. He can see it as clear as day now in verse 30. Now, this is a sight to see, he says. <laughs> ah. This is amazing. This is something really to marvel at. This is, this is quite amazing. You don't know where he's from. And he just opened the eyes of a man born blind? you got to be kidding me. <laughs> two and two, man. This guy's like, man... I'm supposed to be the blind guy in this story. Who's the blind one now? And finally, it's the healed guy's turn to drop a little knowledge. They've been telling everybody else what they know. Now it's his turn to tell them what he knows. We know, throws that gem back in their face. They've been saying that the whole time. Oh, you know something? Let me tell you what we know, brothers. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is godly or does his will, God will hear him. From the beginning of time, it's been unheard of that the eyes of a man born blind would or could be open. If this man, Jesus, were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do a thing. Certainly not something as unprecedented as giving me my sight for the first time. But of course, the dogma of unbelief is impervious to facts. Verse 30, 
4, the Jews remain unconvinced and they are now offended and threatened by being confronted with the reality that now, literally, stares them in the face and sees right through them. So what's their argument now? Well, they lose their temper again and launch a personal attack on this guy. You were born holy in sin and you dare to lecture us? And they threw him out of the synagogue, threw him out of the temple. Notice what they did. They assumed of him the very thing Jesus said was not true of him. They assume, for the sake of their own vindication, that his congenital blindness was due to his sin. When that's exactly what Jesus said was not the case. You were born holy in sin. You are born blind, weren't you? And now you're going to lecture us? Why don't you take a hike? Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but in order that the works of God might be revealed in him. That's what Jesus had said. And yet now you begin to see what those works of God really are. It's not just revealing something about God or about the blind man. It's revealing something about the Pharisees, about self-righteous people who think they know everything they need to know about God without knowing Jesus. The Pharisees are willfully blind to what God is revealing, while a man born blind now sees the world more clearly than they do. Those are the works of God, too. Jesus hears through the grapevine that the Jews had kicked the man out, so Jesus seeks him out, finds him, and elicits from him a profession of faith in the Son of Man, the one from Daniel 7, coming to God on the clouds of heaven to be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Jesus wants this blind man who now sees to see this miracle in the context of salvation history. What does this imply about the one who heals you? You believe in the Son of Man? Because that and nothing less is what Jesus says this miracle revealed about himself. And yet that title, Son of Man, also reminds you of what Jesus had said to Nathanael when they first met in John 1. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's what's happening right now. The man does, in fact, believe in the Son of Man, but he doesn't know who that Son of Man is. And in the positive climax of the whole episode, Jesus tells this formerly blind man in verse 37, you have seen him. You've seen him. And he is the one who is speaking to you. The one speaking to you is that one, the Son of Man from Daniel 7. You're looking at him. And in a pretty big literary irony, Jesus uses the demonstrative pronoun, that one. Same one the man's friends had used in a degrading way. Where is that one? Where is that guy? Where is that blowhard? But Jesus uses it with the utmost reference reverence as a referent to the true and divine Son of Man. And this blind man is the first one to express reliable faith in Jesus. I believe, Lord, and he worshipped him. 
But if that's the positive climax, the negative climax comes in verses 39 to 41. Here, John records what Jesus thinks is the whole point of the whole episode. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, in order that those who do not see might see, and those who see might become blind. That's why I came. The judgment Jesus came for is not condemnation, but rather clarification. Discrimination, right judgment, good judgment, sound judgment, sound decisioning, sound making of distinctions and realizing differences. In fact, he came to reverse and upend human wisdom and self-righteousness altogether. He came to give sight to those who know they are blind or unknowing in matters of the soul and of God. And he came to confirm the blindness of those who assume they understand spiritual things just fine without Jesus. Well, the Pharisees at least know enough to realize that Jesus is critiquing them. That's good. But they can hardly believe the implication in verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, not just are we blind too. That's not what they say. That's a really disappointing translation. What they say grammatically assumes that they are looking for a negative response. They're not expressing genuine concern for their own souls. They're not second-guessing themselves. They're not being innocent. They're not deer caught in the headlights. It's not sincere at all. They're not saying, oh dear, what have we done? Have we been blind this whole time? Oh Jesus, please instruct us now. We're starting to get concerned. It's not that kind of a question. It's sarcastic. It's, come on, give me a break. You cannot be serious. Surely we, of all people, are not blind. you got to be kidding me. You're saying that we're blind? We're the blind ones? Surely you cannot be serious in calling us blind. That's how they ask the question. They assume Jesus cannot possibly think that they are blind. It's tantamount to claiming that they can see spiritual issues just fine. And that assumption in their question is the reason Jesus responds like he does. Jesus said to them, if you were were blind, hey, if you really were blind, if you really meant that question, you would not have sinned. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. If you were really genuine about reconsidering your position about me, you would be in a position to have your sins removed and forgiven. But because you're not, they're not. Your sin remains. They're denying blindness in the way that they ask the question. And in so doing, they are claiming to see. They don't think they're blind, far from it. Their question here is just another repetition of what they think they know. You ever been around somebody like that? The only questions they ask are the ones that they already think they know the answer to. This whole episode, they've just been saying what they think they know. We know this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. We know this man is a sinner. We know God spoke to Moses. We know the healed man is a sinner who has no right to teach us anything. 
And now we know you can't be telling us that we of all people are blind. We know, we know, we know, we know. We see. We see just fine. And that is Jesus' point. Every time you say we know, you're saying we see. And you're saying that because you reject me and in order to reject me. So you're not seeing as you think you do. And the cherry on top is a callback in verse 41 to the original question of verse 2. The whole scene started with the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? The sinners, though, are not the man or his parents. Not in this scene. The sinners in this scene are the self-righteous religious people who think they see themselves in all things clearly without seeing Jesus for who he has already proven himself to be. We see, we know, without seeing Jesus as the Son of Man, Savior and King over God's kingdom, therefore, because you say we see, without trusting in Jesus, your sin remains, Jesus says, while the sin of the healed man is removed. The sin of the man that you think was born blind because of his sin, that man's sin is removed, but not yours. The man was not blind because he sinned. Rather, the Pharisees are sinful Because they say they are not blind. It's reversal, clarification, discernment, right judgment, not based on appearances, but on the truth. The point of the whole thing is you only know God truly if you see Jesus rightly. That's the whole point. You only know God truly if you see Jesus rightly. No matter what you may say, no matter what position of influence or authority or religious prestige you may have. You see, the how question all the way through, how did he open your eyes, hinges on the who question. Who is Jesus? Where is he from? The Pharisees were confident that they already knew God apart from Jesus, without Jesus. We know, we know, we know. But they would not see Jesus for who he is. And in consequence, they not only remained ignorant of how the man was healed, they also did not know the God they thought they knew. And their guilt remained on them. By contrast, and with an irony of biblical proportion, the blind man is the one who sees Jesus for who he really is, and therefore his guilt was removed, and he was reconciled to God by faith in Jesus. So what do we do with all this? Well, I want to make a few different kinds of applications this morning. And one application is to our view of God, to our view of God. God can use evil for good. That's what makes him God. That's what makes him better than you. That's what makes God not just a souped-up version of humanity. God is God. The whole scene opens with the problem of evil. Why was this man born blind? Whose fault was it? His or his parents? Whose sin was being punished with blindness? And Jesus says, that's not the way to look at this one. Natural evil, storms, diseases... 
disasters are not always one-to-one punishments for specific sins. Some are, like the paralytic at the pool in John 5, when Jesus told him in chapter 5, verse 14, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. (laughs) Okay, that was his fault. (laughs) Or think of Paul telling the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 that taking the Lord's Supper without reconciling their relationships with each other is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Your fault. So yeah, sometimes sin is the reason, but not always. Think of Job's friends. Or Luke 13, 1 through 5, natural disasters like towers falling on people are not indications that they were worse sinners than anybody else, but rather warnings that we should all repent or we likewise will perish. With the man born blind, it's not that he and his parents were sinless. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's that blindness was not a moral punishment for whatever sin they had committed. It was a planned opportunity for God to be glorified in his healing. And of course, there can be no healing without a prior disease. There is no deliverance without a prior bondage. Friend, just because someone else suffers a natural disease or disaster doesn't necessarily mean they're more sinful than you are. It may just mean God wants to show his power in them, or maybe he wants to warn and encourage you. Whatever the case, God has a good purpose in allowing bad things. And we should not assume that we can always know what that is or how it's going to work. People sometimes think they can corner God. If God is so good, then why is the world so bad? How can a good God allow such bad things? Therefore, I don't believe in God. Easy peasy, right? Actually, it's a little too easy. Isn't that an example of thinking you see when you are blind, just like the Pharisees in John 9? The truth is, the worst social injustice in the history of humanity, the crucifixion of the sinless Christ, was intended, planned, even predestined by God to accomplish the greatest good of saving sinners of every color and culture from the penalty and power of their sins. Acts 4.27. So even in the problem of evil then, you only know God truly if you see Jesus rightly. You can't solve the problem of evil. You can't reconcile yourself to the problem of evil until you see that that problem of evil is reconciled in the cross. Greatest evil, predestined by God to accomplish the greatest good. If you can submit to that, every other problem of every other evil is lessened. It's dwarfed by what happened at the cross, morally. If you see Jesus' death rightly as the greatest evil that brought the greatest good, then you truly know that God can use natural evils to bring about natural or even eternal goods, even though they are heart-wrenching to you in the moment. That's how God is bigger and better than you and me. 
There's a few things that we should say about Christ himself from this passage as well. We know Jesus is from heaven because of what he did on earth. <laughs> the healed man said in nine, chapter 9, verse 30, you don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes? That's weird. We should know Jesus is from heaven by what he did on earth. Jesus did miracles, physical healing, spiritual exorcisms, calming storms. That's how we know who he is and where he's from. That's how he tipped his hand. That's how he let us know, hey, I'm here. I'm here. Watch this. And now watch how I preserve it for you for 2,000 years plus in Scripture. How's that? So if you're a skeptic of Christianity, can I just reason and plead with you for a minute? I mean, to act as if we're too modern, too sophisticated, maybe too smart, too rigorous to believe in Jesus' healings and miracles, that's to say that we see when we're blind, when we don't want to see what there really is to see. That's the eternally fatal conceit. To reject Jesus' miracles as pre-modern is to be too smart for our own good. To reject his resurrection because it doesn't conform to our own experience is to make our own very limited reason and experience the judge of all reality. Are you really going to say that your reason is the arbiter of what can or cannot be? That's not a broadening perspective on reality. It's a narrowing perspective. It's to close the mind, not open it. It's to think like a secular Pharisee. To say that Jesus' miracles cannot be true because miracles do not regularly happen is kind of to talk in a circle. Jesus' miracles are especially convincing precisely because they're irregular. <laughs> Precisely because they don't happen every day. That's why he did them. No one else had done or could do what Jesus did. That's what proves Jesus' uniqueness, is how unique his miracles were. How else was Jesus to prove his unique transcendence and authority over reality except by exercising that authority in ways that were only possible to him? But if you cut all that out of your Bible, you're muzzling his own testimony to himself. And it's no wonder that you don't believe. This also has to do with Christian conversion. Jesus has to see you first and open your eyes before you are able to see him. Theologians have long pointed out that this blind man is a classic example of coming to faith in Jesus. Jesus sees him first. Jesus opens his eyes. And once his eyes are open, he then goes from talking about Jesus simply as a man to talking about him as a prophet to talking about him as a man from God and finally to the Son of Man, the King of God's kingdom. That is the change that has to take place for you to become a Christian. Who do you say that Jesus is? And there's an urgency to it. You should trust Jesus now while you have the chance. 
This healing was another chance for the Pharisees to trust Jesus and be saved, but they held on to their skepticism instead. So non-Christian, don't let that be you. This whole time between Jesus' resurrection and his return is Jesus being patient for you to come to faith in him so that you don't suffer the judgment of eternal hell that he's warning you against and came to save you from. So don't wait. Admit the reality that God is your holy creator and your righteous judge. Admit that you are sinful just like the rest of us and that you have offended and angered God by your sin, just like we have. Admit that you deserve eternal hell for offending such an infinitely righteous and holy, loving God, just like we deserve. And trust in Jesus' death as God's appointed sacrifice to satisfy for your sins. Time is running out. This is not going to last forever. Another way that this text illustrates the Christian life is that experiencing Jesus' power is its own argument for his divinity. The one thing this man knows is, I was blind and now I see. I don't know a whole lot about this, Jesus. I haven't even seen him with my new eyes yet. All I know is, here I am, I'm looking at you. I got 20-20. So what do you want to do? (laughs) Like, I don't know how else to make sense of that experience, but by saying Jesus is way more special than you think he is. I couldn't see, and now I see. (laughs) That's open and shut. I don't care what you're saying about Moses or what's right, how much mud you can make on the Sabbath. I, I don't have that answer, but I know that I can see now, and I couldn't see yesterday. I woke up blind, and now I can see. What am I supposed to do with that? You know honey is sweet by how it tastes. I don't have to give you a molecular construction or diagram of honey, and then you'd be like, oh, yeah, I can see how that would be sweet, yeah. That's not how I want to prove to you that honey is really good on a biscuit. I just want to be, I would just want to slather it on there. Be like, hey, man, (laughs) get you some. Yeah, it's sweet, isn't it? You're like, oh, man, yeah. That's how you know how it tastes. You know the sun is bright by looking at it. I don't have to figure out how big the sun is or how far it is from the earth. I don't have to figure out how hot is the sun. How hot does the sun have to be to be? How many lumens? That's not how you know the sun is bright. You look at it if you dare. When the Spirit of God gives you new eyes to see the Son of God for who He is and what He's done in His death and resurrection, you know it. Because you have a new taste for Jesus that you didn't have before. You see Him in a new light. You see beauty in Him. You see significance and meaning and trustworthiness and faithfulness and wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in Him. That's how you know. And either you know or you don't. Either honey sweet to you or it's not. Either the sun is bright or you're blind. His identity, his authority, his love, it all becomes self-evident to you. It, experience isn't the only argument for Jesus' divinity. I know that. 
But every Christian must sense in some way that a great change has taken place in his heart and life and in his thoughts and feelings, his motives, his loves, his habits, his relationships. Who do you like to be around? Who do you not like to be around? What do you like to fill your mind with? What do you not like to fill your mind with? What's your opinion about your sin now? Everything changes. The gospel is not just a change of opinion. It is a change of heart and life. And it is convincing to all those who experience it. This passage also applies to Christian practice. We should make followers of Jesus as we're able while we can. We, Jesus says to his disciples, we, not I, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus said that about the urgency of his own earthly life and ministry. But how much more would he say that about the time in between his resurrection and his return? It applies to his churches today. Now is the day of salvation for sinners. If it's appointed for men once to die and after that judgment, then there should be a sense of urgency in the churches for the work of evangelism. Let's maximize our opportunities for speaking the gospel. You believe in the second coming of Jesus. So believe in it for the sake of your unbelieving friends and neighbors. Don't let Christ come back and be able to say to you, what about your neighbor Larry? You never said anything to him? Why do you think I had you live there? Let's sustain our evangelistic friendships with unbelievers. Let's make as many followers of Jesus while we can. We are already running out of spiritual daylight. Night is coming when no man can work. What we do for the cause of Christ, we have to do now. If we love Jesus, we work with him and for him while we can. And the good news for every evangelist is that regeneration is Jesus' work, not ours. Jesus saw the man before the man was ever able to see Jesus. Jesus initiated that whole encounter. It's a picture of how salvation works. Jesus had to give this man eyes to see himself. And that means regeneration is Jesus' work, not ours. New eyes, new thoughts, new life comes from God alone. There is a freedom in our evangelism. And in our Christian parenting, from remembering, regeneration is God's work, not your work. A lot of parents in this room. You better remember that. You cannot regenerate your child. I'm going to say that again. You cannot regenerate your child. You can evangelize him. You can speak the gospel to him or her. You can discipline them. You cannot make them believe. That is not up to you. Jesus does not expect you to make your child believe because Jesus knows the division of labor better than you do. You evangelize. It will be up to me to give him new eyes to see it. we got to be faithful 
God will make us as fruitful as he deems fit. Our job is proclamation. Jesus' job is to use that gospel proclamation to create faith, convict sinners, convert them, and conform them to his image. So if you've been as faithful as you can be, then you are free to leave your fruitfulness in God's hands. Your children, your unbelieving friends and neighbors are not going to see God rightly until they see Jesus rightly. But they will not see Jesus rightly unless Jesus himself is the one who opened their eyes. You can't open their eyes. You are not a spiritual ophthalmologist. Jesus is that. So pray, Christian, pray. That's all you can do. You got to pray to Jesus. That he will give your family and friends new eyes to see him as he is. But don't you get mealy-mouthed. Speak the gospel. Speak it in love. Speak it clearly. Speak it kindly and patiently. The fear of man's exclusion should not silence our testimony to Jesus. The reason the man's parents didn't want to stick up for their son or for Jesus is they feared being excluded by the Jews. They didn't want to get outed. So, Christian, you cannot let your fear of man silence your testimony to Jesus. Jesus is going to be faithful to you even if you lose your job. Even if you lose insider status in your neighborhood or lose the respect of those you admire. Jesus sees it when you sacrifice those things to him for him, and he will not forget your labor of love. He will not forget that. You've got to trust that, that he sees it. John 9 is also one of those passages that illustrates how God uses the weak to shame the strong. This formerly blind beggar saw more clearly than the Pharisees who had seminary-level education. And Christian, that should encourage you in your evangelism. You can do what this man did. What has Christ done for you? Speak it. Just because you speak your testimony doesn't mean you're speaking the gospel. You have to speak the gospel. Your testimony and the gospel are different things. The gospel is the content of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and all its implications for our reconciliation to God, the forgiveness of our sins, our right standing with God. Your testimony is what that did in you. So speak that and speak what it did in you. And then you are doing evangelism. And pray that God would glorify himself in your afflictions. Jesus worked... Jesus worked God's work in this man's blindness. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) This guy was born blind. I don't know how old he was. But this blindness lasted, I'm sure, way longer than this man wanted his blindness to last. He thought he was going to be blind the rest of his life, all his life. So pray that God would work his works in your own affliction. Pray that he would glorify himself in whatever sickness or weakness you have, whatever disaster has come upon you, whatever your tragedy or sorrow, pray that God would honor himself in it. Pray that God would honor Jesus in it and in your response to it. This controversy around this healing also raises the question, what does it mean to be biblical? Every Christian wants to be biblical, right? I'm biblical. I believe in the Bible. What do you mean? The Pharisees wanted to be biblical. They had a biblical argument for rejecting Jesus. We are disciples of Moses. The Pharisees think Jesus is breaking the biblical Sabbath by making mud to heal the man, when in fact Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath by releasing the man from his blindness and restoring what he broke. 
both the Pharisees and Jesus thought they were the biblical ones. But only Jesus was truly biblical. To be biblical like the Pharisees is to find your righteousness and everybody else's in strict personal adherence to the letter of the law. Do this and you will live. To be biblical like Jesus is to find the letter of the law fulfilled in Jesus' personal power and obedience and sacrifice on your behalf and on behalf of all those who will ever turn from their sins and trust in him. To be biblical like the Pharisees is to assume you can know God and understand his word without Jesus. Or that his word has a point that is something other than Jesus. To be biblical like Jesus is to realize you cannot know God unless you know him through Jesus, and you cannot understand his word unless you see it as fulfilled in Jesus. Therefore, there is a non-Christian, even anti-Christian way of being biblical. But only Jesus' way of being biblical is truly Christian. I'm not going to develop this, but I'm just going to say it for your encouragement. Your physical and social affliction is not always a punishment for your sin. Your physical and social affliction is not always a punishment for your sin. And by contrast, your social or institutional success is not always a reward for your right living. I want to make a few final cultural applications. Confidence does not guarantee correctness. One of the recurring themes we're seeing in John, I feel like a broken record, is that people are supremely confident about rejecting Jesus and they could not be more wrong. Here again, the ruling human authorities simply keep repeating what they think they know. We know this man is not from God. We know that this man is a sinner. We know this healed man has no business teaching us anything. And even to Jesus' face in their rhetorical question, they say, in effect, we know what we know. We know we are not blind. We know we are right about you. To Jesus' face. Confident in their knowledge, unwittingly oblivious to the truth. And isn't this still the modern mantra of skepticism? We know science has disproved the Bible. We know that God cannot be good if there's so much evil in the world. We know people are not bad just because they can't control their sexuality. We know Jesus wouldn't disapprove of so many people. We know that the doctrine of hell is senseless. We know that the universe was randomly generated rather than being created by the good and sovereign God. We know, we know, we know. Isn't this why the Bible is so unpopular to the modern mind? Precisely because it challenges our confidence in what we think we know? That we are correct in our unbelief? But unbelief about Jesus does not make him unbelievable. There was a division among the Pharisees about who Jesus is. Some said he was a sinner. Others said sinners can't do those kind of signs. But you understand what's at issue. Evidence is not what's lacking. In this passage, it's the meaning of the evidence. That's what's being controverted. But the evidence itself is there, living and breathing and talking in the person of the healed man. The question is not whether the healing happened. It did happen. Nobody questions that it happened, not after talking to his parents. The only question is how. But again, the how question 
is really about the who question. It would be comical if it weren't so tragic. They actually confirm that the healed man was born blind, yet they refuse to acknowledge what is right in front of them. Jesus healed a man born blind. <laughs> but sadly, unbelief, again, is impervious to facts. Just as blindness is impervious to light. What's lacking is sight to see the evidence in the right light. As one theologian put it, this paragraph underlines the dogmatism of the elite which keeps them from hearing or seeing the truth. See, dogma is not unique to traditional religious faith. The dogma of unbelief is on full display in the Pharisees' refusal to see the evidence that is staring them in the face. They have repeatedly interrogated a man healed of congenital blindness. They have confirmed for themselves that he was born blind. They admit that he now sees, and somehow they remain doggedly committed to their own unbelieving dogma. This simply cannot be what it looks like. Because it contradicts our commitments about what truth is and can be. And that cannot happen. We must not be contradicted. But is this not the same logic of today's unbelief? To insist that we know God while we reject Jesus only proves us blind. The leaders ask the healed man, what do you say about Jesus? What do you say about him? You're the one he healed. What do you say? All the while, they were ignoring the living proof and the man who was staring them in the face with the new eyes Jesus had just given them. They shouldn't even need to ask the question. Friend, don't let your own unbelief make you impervious to the facts of the gospel. Look again at Jesus. What do you say about him? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are blind until we see you in the light of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give eyes to more sinners to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Make this a church that would help people see. Would open their eyes. Make us Christians who are useful to others in helping them to see Jesus rightly. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would bless our efforts. That you would use our proclamation of the gospel and our Christ-like love for sinners by your power to open their eyes. May we be faithful and may you make us fruitful in these things. For Jesus' sake, amen.